Hey everyone, welcome to Flying Geese Theology, Episode 1. I'm your host, Brian, and this week we're talking about nonviolence and narratives. So, should Christians hold to an ethic of nonviolence, and what are the narratives that we use as a church, as a body of believers, to tell us about how nonviolence and and violence intersect with our lives as Christians. Let's get into it. All right, let's get into it. So nonviolence and narratives. We're going to be discussing, first of all, why it is that I believe that Christians should hold to an ethic of nonviolence, or rather an ethic that is pro-peace, that in any and every circumstance, we are committed to bringing peace and to doing so through peaceful means. Then we're going to talk about why it is that I think violence is, or a pro-violence ethic is insufficient for Christianity, why I think that it falls short of what it is that scripture tells us about how we should live. And and then we'll talk about some complications for a Christian nonviolent ethic. What is it that, that makes this difficult to, to believe? What are some, some things that maybe we need to wrestle with and that nuance our understanding. And then lastly, we'll discuss a little bit about narratives and about how it is that as a church, we, we do use narratives to tell us about about power and about righteousness and virtue and how it is that maybe some of these narratives have led us astray. So first off, why do I believe in nonviolence? Um, I was first introduced to the idea of being a Christian pacifist uh, through Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II, he he was outspoken against against Hitler and against uh, Nazism and the the evil that they were committing against the Jewish people, and and, and because of this, he was he he ended up going to prison and eventually um, being executed by special order of Hitler himself. And this is where Bonhoeffer's relationship to nonviolence gets a little tricky, because on the one hand, he is professedly nonviolent and believes that that Christians should not use violence under any circumstance. But towards the end of his life, and what eventually got him put in prison, was that he began to believe that there was simply no other way to stop Hitler, that the, the sin of killing Hitler was less than the sin of standing by and watching, and watching the horrors that Nazism was bringing upon all sorts of people. And so he became part of a plot to assassinate Hitler, um, which is not a very nonviolent thing to do. But Bonhoeffer was my first introduction to this, and particularly through his interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. This is what Jesus writes. 
This is what Jesus says. This is what Matthew writes. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so the interpretation that I had grown up hearing that I was used to says that the, the first half of this passage where, where Jesus talks about turn the other cheek and go the, go the extra mile and don't just give your tunic but also give your cloak, that these are all examples of violence by, by oppressors to oppressed people. So primarily they're examples of things that Roman soldiers would do to the Jewish people in Jesus' time. And so the, the, the way that this interpretation then moves is to say that because of that, this doesn't apply to every and any circumstance where someone might strike you. That has a very narrow application to if, uh, I guess, if an occupying force assaults you. Uh, but this feels kind of thin and hollow, I think, if we really pause to consider what it is that, that Jesus is saying. Because if it, even if it is primarily about the Romans, and I'm not saying that that's not true. There's good exegesis that, and good historical data that points us in the direction that, that kind of the subtext here is that Jesus is referencing Roman soldiers as being the violent oppressors in this section. Even still, does it not then even more apply when my fellow citizen assaults me? Because that is a, a lesser evil on from from my perspective that you know if if joe schmo who makes just as much an hour as as me tries to tries to punch me then that is not nearly as bad as you know a, an oppressive occupying government using their authority and power to beat someone to death and then what kind of further i think i think leads us away from this narrow interpretation is is two sentences one is here at the beginning when jesus says do not resist the one who is evil there are no qualifications after that all he does is give examples of what that looks like he does not say do not the, resist the one who is evil as long as they're in a position of authority over you or as long as whatever. Full stop. 
do not resist. And then, then he goes on to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And how can you love someone when you're enacting violence upon them? And this, and this is where Bonhoeffer's interpretation comes in. One of his big things in his book, Cost of Discipleship, or Discipleship which is, is the original German title, um, is that we need to obey Jesus with simple obedience. And so we, we try to get out of it sometimes by adding conditions or by spiritualizing it. And he, Bonhoeffer simply says, no, when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he meant turn the other cheek. And when he said, love your enemy, he meant love your enemy and all that that includes. And it feels pretty obvious to me that that does not include violence. And so this was kind of my, my introduction to Christian nonviolence. And for a long time, th this was compelling enough to me for, for me to say, you know what, I believe in Christian nonviolence, but I don't quite believe in it enough to maybe promote it or tell other people that that's what they should believe. Um, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty personally convinced of this. And that was where I was at for a long time. But then I uh, recently, um, I was introduced through my political theology class at TED's to an author by the name of Stanley Hauerwas. He is a current author, um, a, an American author, who also is an advocate for nonviolence. And Hauerwas takes a bit of a different approach. He doesn't just point to the Sermon on the Mount and say, look, see, now go and do, which is, I think that maybe should be enough. But Hauerwas broadens our, our perspective, and he, he's trying to, to get us to see this, in, this movement of Scripture towards a world of nonviolence. And so where Hauerwas goes, he points out that Jesus is the kingdom of God. Right? When Jesus bursts onto the scene in all of the Gospels, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is having drawn near. The kingdom of God is, in effect, here in Jesus. And what he's doing is he's tapping into this Old Testament theme of the last days of when God would come and would rule over the whole world and over Israel perfectly. And one of the main components of that rule in the Old Testament is peace. You have passages that, that talk about the lion laying down with the lamb and about people beating their swords into plowshares, right? They're beating their weapons of war into tools for farming. And so, and so what Hauerwas points out is that the kingdom of God is here. It came in Christ. And even though there are elements of it that are still future, as Christians, we are now citizens of that kingdom. And so we are citizens of the kingdom of peace, ruled by the Prince of Peace. And so because Christ is the end of all violence, because he has brought the kingdom of peace, and we are now living as citizens of peace in the kingdom of peace, led by the Prince of Peace, we are to live peacefully and not with violence in any circumstance. And the, 
the obvious maybe um maybe response to this is just to say well that's all well and good but we still live in a violent world at at the time of 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 the recording of this i have seen in the news in the last 2 3 weeks more gun violence and death than i think in the entire rest of this last year and maybe that's just because i was kind of tuned out for the rest of this last year i had i had my nose in in my school books but just in in the last 2 weeks there have been several very very publicized and um newsworthy murders in in Chicago the city where where i live and there was a mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas just a few days after there was a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York and and all of this is happening while while we're learning about the rampant sexual abuse that was happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the denomination that I was a part of for a very long time. And so as, as I'm recording this, I am I am hyper aware of the fact that we live in a very violent world where evil people just seem to be in charge and to be able to get away with everything they do. But I think that it is it is because we live in that violent world that it is all the more important that we proclaim with our actions and our words that the kingdom of peace has arrived and that if people will put their faith in Jesus and follow after him, then they too can be citizens of the kingdom of peace. And so broadly speaking, these are kind of the two, the two big reasons for me why Christians should be nonviolent. And they're, they obviously go together. And so one of them is tapping into this broader theme of, of Scripture, this, over, this overarching narrative that points us to the future heavenly city where there will be no more violence. And it says that that kingdom has already come now. It is here, it is among us, and we are living in it. And so live as citizens of peace. And the other kind of element that brings into this is just a direct command that ought to be obeyed from our Lord. This says, do not resist the evil one. Love your neighbor. Turn the other cheek. And ultimately, I, I feel that an ethic that allows and accommodates for violence is insufficient for Christians. Um, the the two kind of main reasons that are given um, for a Christian ethic that that allows violence is the first one is is protection that we have things that deserve to be protected, and that's true. We like I I am married. I don't want anyone to hurt my wife. Um, but sometimes the the way that that this protection element is is put forward, it just it makes me wonder when when is it appropriate to just die? 
to walk forward and accept pain and suffering and death by the hands of wicked, evil people as a result of following Christ. I know, I know several people who um, have a concealed carry license, and so they, they bring their, their firearm in the, as a concealed carry with them to church um, so that if somebody walks in to attempt a mass shooting at, at their church, they can stop them. But this just seems so counterintuitive for people who are followers of the one who died and who called us to pick up our crosses and follow after him, even to the point of death. Um, and so that's the first ethic that I think is ultimately insufficient is is protection, because it seems it seems to me more clear in scripture that we're what we're called to is not protection but but martyrdom and the the second the second reason that is often given is that violence is needed to stop evil that there are evil people who do evil things and the only way to stop them is violence and and again this is this is not easy coming coming off of and having just witnessed these these mass shootings what ultimately ended up stopping them were people that used violence and or at the very least the threat of violence but i think that something that is even becoming increasingly clear to the world around us is that we need to expand our moral imagination such that we can stop evil peacefully. Because all, all that we're doing by stopping it violently is just propagating and ensuring more violence to come. And so instead we need to expand our, our moral imagination, our, our view of reality such that we can we can imagine and we can creatively find ways of stopping evil peacefully. And I know that sounds idealistic as, as heck, but I just don't know that I, I just don't know that we're called as Christians to violence. And, and all that being said, there are still parts of this that, that I hold loosely that, that make me, uncomfortable um one of those passages that that makes me uncomfortable and puts a little rock in my shoe every time i think about this is romans chapter 13 in romans 13 paul writes let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from god and those that exist have been instituted by god Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So Paul is saying in, in these opening couple of verses that at some level, every single government has been given their authority to, to govern, to rule by God himself. And so there's, 
there's a sense in which as long as the government is acting properly and act, acting within the boundaries of authority that God has given them, to resist them is actually to resist God. And he says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. And here, here's the part that I think is most important for, that, that, that most puts a rock in my shoe. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, the government, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And the reason why this so puts a rock in my shoe, I think, is obvious. That Paul is saying that, that to some degree the government has been given God's authority to violently carry out justice against wrongdoers. Right? They do not bear the sword that's sort of a, a stand-in for violence in vain. And then his reason for that is that they are God's own servant who have been ordained by God to carry out God's wrath. Um, and so the, the reason why this puts a rock in my shoe, I think maybe the, the easy way out of this, if, if we want to hold a nonviolent ethic, is just, is just to say, oh, well, but that's just for the government. Paul, you know, and so Christians are called to be nonviolent, but the government is allowed to be violent as kind of this this stopgap to avoid, to stop people from just endlessly killing each other. And that's, I, I think to some degree that, that interpretation holds water. But what happens when a Christian is a government employee? Now we have an issue where on the one hand, we're saying that as a Christian, they're called to nonviolence, but as a government employee, they're called to wield violence justly to stop evil. And it's not like they can just stop being a Christian you know, during their nine to five, and then stop being a government employee once they come off the clock. Those those two things aren't aren't. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> and so and so this is, I think, a legitimate and and critique of maybe a nonviolent ethic, or it's something that definitely need I need to wrestle with more. Um, and the other passage that really gives me pause. Um, just because of how seeming seemingly odd it is, is in Luke chapter twenty-two. Um, Luke chapter twenty-two. So in Luke twenty-two, starting in verse thirty-five, this is what I this is what it says. And Jesus said to them, "When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything?" And they said, "Nothing." So he's referencing a, an earlier point in the gospel where Jesus sends them out on this, like, I don't know, like a couple week long evangelism tour. And he tells them that they're not allowed to take anything with them, not even an extra cloak or money or a backpack or anything. They're just to go town to town and rely on people. So he said he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And read that last sentence again. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And so Jesus is, is telling them to go out and buy swords, presumably to use them. He says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. 
and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And so this this obviously causes problems for a Christian ethic of nonviolence, because it seems like Jesus is telling us to buy swords, probably so that we can use them. But I, I think there's there's a few reasons why I, I don't know that he's literally telling us to to go out and purchase weapons for their use. And so the first reason is here in the passage. So he's talking presumably to the 12, um, the, the 12 apostles or the 11 apostles at this point. Judas has already kind of gone off to to do his betrayal thing. Um, and they say, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So between the 11 of them, they have two swords. But Jesus doesn't seem to think that they should go out and purchase nine more swords for the remaining 11. And then the next part is is here. Um, so Jesus prays and then and, and then this this next story happens, picking up verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword, those swords that you just told us to purchase? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus even kind of reprimands the chief priests and the officers for, for having swords. And so I think that there's definitely more going on in this passage. Um, Matthew Henry and, and John Calvin, both kind of uh, 1500s and, and 1600s interpreters, say that Jesus is speaking sort of metaphorically here, that he's what he's intending by these words is simply that the times will will be dangerous and people will feel like they need a sword um, because of how dangerous the world will be and how dangerous it will be to be a follower of Christ. And, and so this definitely is, again, though, just something that it puts a rock in my shoe. If you're watching this on a, on a platform that allows for comments, um, I, I would love to hear your thoughts. Comment, comment down below what it is that, that you think does... Um, does Romans 13, does Luke 22, do these passages seem to kind of just completely undo everything that I said before? Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. For our last section here, I want to talk about narratives. Narratives, stories, are what we use to make sense of the world. Um, just about every era and culture has used stories to communicate virtue what it is that makes a person a good person and so and so the narratives that we as an american 21st century church community use to communicate who is good and who is bad will tell us a lot about about what it is that we truly believe about righteousness about what it means to act righteously I think that what is striking to me is that a narrative that I've heard often from other Christians who have an ethic that that explicitly allows and in some case even encourages violence, 
the narrative that I hear a lot of the time from them is the story of the good guy with a gun stopping the bad guy with a gun. It's a very short story, but it goes like this. When there's a bad guy with a gun pointing it at morally neutral people, the best, fastest, and quickest way to stop him is by a good guy with a gun using their gun to shoot him. That's the end of the story. And it's obvious that what the story is telling us is that to be good, to live righteously, is to use violence to stop other violent people who would use violence for evil purposes. But my fear is that we've allowed this narrative of the good guy with a gun to overshadow a much better story that we're supposed to live our lives by. And that's of the good guy on a cross stopping all evil everywhere in its tracks and telling us that we are to live just like him. One of the stories that the, one of the narratives that I was told growing up that has had a profound influence on my life is the story of, of Jim Elliott. Um, Jim Elliott was uh, an American Christian missionary who was part of a group that went to the Amazon force to evangelize a tribe called the Aka tribe, who was known for their incredible violence. They, they, they were, they were killers, but Jim and, and his, and his crew and, and their wives went out and they, they slowly over a period of many, many months got to a place where they felt like it might be safe to try and meet some people from the tribe. And, and, and so they went and they, they got out of their plane and they were brutally murdered without fighting back. But the story doesn't end there. What happened afterwards is the, the widows of these men continued the mission and eventually came to a place where they were able to meet the people of the tribe, and share the gospel of peace with them, and share that they were not there to seek vengeance for the death of their husbands, but they were there to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who had taken on the sin of murder that they had committed, and taken the penalty for it himself, so that these women... Um, could forgive. If you have not read that story or or heard that story before, I really encourage you to go read um, Under the Shadow of the Almighty is uh, the book by Elizabeth Elliot, uh, Jim Elliot's wife, about this and the movie, which I've actually never seen because when I came out, it was really young and my parents didn't want me to see it, um, is called End of the Spear. But that what is sitting behind that amazing story that has spurred on and has um, inspired many, many missionaries since. What is sitting behind that is a lesser-known story that Elizabeth Elliot tells in Under the Shadow of the Almighty about how one of Jim's favorite books was Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this is a book that was that was written, um, I'm not exactly sure, I think it was the, the 16 and the 1700s. And it just it just details one by one the story of every Christian martyr, starting with Jesus and going all the way up until the author's day, and how they peacefully sacrificed their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. 
And so sometimes it, it can be it can be discouraging to to look out and see all the violence in the world and and to hear about people that that are 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 convinced that violence is the way. But how is it that that we can change hearts and minds that we can instill in in ourselves and in other believers this same commitment to nonviolence that led Jim Elliot and Elizabeth Elliot and and our savior himself to not lash out at the very people that would kill them it's by telling these stories of people who lived the cruciform life of people like Jim Elliot like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who for the sake of the gospel laid down their own lives instead of taking somebody else's and so on that note we're going to end the podcast um Thanks for tuning in this week. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Um, Really helps the channel out. I really appreciate it. And it keeps you updated on all of our new episodes. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.